Good morning, Four Point. How you doing? No, oh, that was pitiful. That was pitiful. How y'all doing this morning? Good. That's good. That's good. Uh, like Mark said, my name is Blake Pitts. I'm the lead pastor at Life Point Church. Uh, we have not even started meeting yet. We're going to start meeting in a couple of weeks. Our official launch is in September, and so we are so excited to be here. I, I want to thank Mark so much for allowing us to come here and kind of have a trial run uh, through this whole deal and allowing our band to come and allowing uh, me to speak, and, and, uh, and man, it, it's, it's just good to be here. I have known Mark for a long time. I can tell a lot of stories about your pastor. Um, we have known each other since uh, our freshman year of college, and uh, we got into a lot of trouble our freshman year of college. Uh, it has to do with water balloons and launchers and things of that nature that we won't get into. But, uh, but man, he's a great friend of mine. I'm blessed to have Mark Pangle uh, in my life, and you're blessed to have him as your pastor. I hear about all kinds of great things that are going on here at Four Point. People getting saved, people getting baptized, uh, God changing lives here. And uh, we're just happy. I'm just happy to be a part of it. Just happy to be here and, uh, and get to see what God is doing uh, firsthand. Uh, I want to start this morning, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6, John chapter 6, and I want to start out today by asking you three very important questions, three very important questions. The first one is one that you've probably heard a hundred times. If you spent any time in church, you've heard this question, uh, you've probably heard it and kind of glossed over it, you've heard it and, and, and quickly answered it, hadn't really thought about it, but this morning I want us to really think about and inspect our lives as we answer this question, and the question is this. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? In my best guess, by my best guess, there are probably two groups of people in here with two totally different answers. First of all, we have the I'm in church every week crowd, right? We have the I'm in church every, that may be you, you're sitting in here, you're here every week, you're serving, you're giving, you're living life the way you feel like God wants you to live it. You're doing everything you can to please God. And you would answer that question, absolutely. Sure, Blake, I'm a follower of Jesus, but let me tell you what I'm not asking you, okay? Let's qualify the question, but let's look at what, when I ask you if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what I'm not asking you. I'm not asking you if you go to church. I'm not asking you if your parents or your grandparents were Christians. I'm not asking you if you walked down an aisle one day and repeated a prayer after a preacher. I'm not asking you if you have three or more Bibles in your home. I'm not asking you if you say bless your heart before you say something really bad about somebody. All right? I'm not asking you if you pray in a whisper voice so that people will think that you're more spiritual. Doesn't that sound more spiritual when I talk like that? It's not what I'm asking you. I'm not asking you on your Facebook, under your profile, it says Christ follower. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking you today to really look at your life and answer the question, yes. Am I a follower of Jesus or not? Because many are quick to say, yes, I'm a follower of Christ. But what does that really mean? I mean, you may be here this morning, you've been in church your entire life, and when we begin to ask that question, what it means to be a follower of Christ, what did Jesus really mean when he said, when he looked at those disciples and he said, follow me? What does that really mean? Nobody ever takes a job without reading the job description first, right? I mean, all right, I'm not going to say, yes, I'm a Christ follower if I really don't quite know what that means. I'm not going to, before I sign on the dotted line, man, I want to know what it means, right? Nobody ever takes a job before reading the job description except this guy. When I was in high school, I took a job at a golf course and I thought, you know, 
this is going to be a breeze. I'm going to ride around on a golf cart all day. I'm going to maybe wash some clubs, ride a lawnmower or something. Even if I do maintenance, I'm just going to be riding a mower. My third straight day of weed-eating ditches, I realized, you know what? Maybe I should have read the job description. Because I don't want to dig that. You need to read the job description before you take a job. And most people think, listen, most people think, I don't want to go to hell, right? Nobody wants to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. Jesus doesn't want me to either. And so, yeah, sign me up. I want to be a Christian. And some, some of you may have come to a point in your life where you just felt like you needed more. And maybe your marriage was in a bad place and you're thinking, man, if this whole Jesus thing, if it's going to fix my marriage or if it's going to make my kids behave or, or if it's going to straighten my life out, well then, yeah, sign me up. And we never really looked in the Bible, in the Word of God, at what Jesus said it really means to be a follower of Jesus. So do you, some of you in here that, that answered that question, yes, I'm a, absolutely I'm a follower of Jesus. I want us this morning to to reflect on. I want us to, to really inspect our lives and what that really means and look in the Word of God and see what that really means. The other group, the other group here is the I can't believe I'm in church crowd, right? I mean, you may have been here, you were bribed to get here. You're probably your, your wife or your parents, man. They, they, you're just here to get them off of your back for a certain amount of time until you have to come again. You don't really want to be here, and that's okay. First of all, let me say one thing, Jesus loves you. Second thing is, Four Points loves you. All, right, they do every, all this is to make you feel welcome to be here. They want you here. If you're a messed up sinner, they want you here. Because listen, you sit beside a messed up sinner. Amen? I mean, we're all messed up. And so they want you here. But if that's you here, you, you, you would probably answer that question, am I a follower of Christ? You would answer it no. I mean, you don't want to be rude. and you, you don't, It's not that, that you're not sensitive to the whole Christianity thing. It's just it's not your thing. It's just, you're not into it. But let me ask you this one question. Let me ask that crowd this one question. What if? What if? What if all of life and all of death, all of what if all of eternity revolved around this one question, the answer to this one question, are you a follower of Jesus? I mean, if this word is true, then that's a pretty important question. And I think... Enough hinges on that question for even if you're here and you say, Blake, I'm not a follower of Jesus, it's enough for you to consider it and to listen to what we got to say this morning. Because let me let you in. Now, well, first of all, let me be upfront with you. If that's you, if you're crowd number two, I'm going to be very upfront with you this morning. I'm not going to try to sell Jesus to you. I'm not going to try to sell it to you. I'm not going to tell you uh, the things that are most appealing about Jesus and leave out the things that aren't. I'm not going to try to sell you Jesus today so that you'll follow Jesus not knowing the whole consequence of the decision that you're making. Because let me be upfront with you. There are people in group number one who think they're followers of Jesus who have never truly understood in fullness what it means to be a follower of Christ. There may be people in this room right here that will say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, and you don't have a clue what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So this morning, I want to talk about a group of people in the Bible who thought they were followers. who The, the Bible even calls them disciples. But yet they weren't. Let's look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, starting in verse 1. This is a very famous story in the Bible, if you want to call them famous. Very well-known story. Starting in verse 1. Sometime... After this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. 
Then Jesus went up on the mountainside, sat with his disciples, and the Jewish Passover feast was near. All right, so we have Jesus has been doing all these, all kinds of miracles, all kinds of crazy things. He's got a huge crowd following him. Here, this is the little D disciples. These aren't the 12 disciples. Those are the apostles. These are the disciples, probably a pretty good crowd of people following Jesus. And so Jesus sits down on a mountainside and he begins to speak to these people. And all of a sudden, a big group comes up. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, when Jesus looked up, he saw a great crowd coming towards him. He said to Philip, and I love this, he said to Philip, where shall we buy the bread for these people to eat? And so he looks at Philip, one of his disciples, and you got to think Philip has a deer in the headlight look here, right? Jesus, the son of God, who's been doing all these crazy miracles, looks at him and there's 5,000 people around him and said, listen, Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? You ever freaked out when somebody asks you a question like that? I can't imagine what Philip's thinking. Why are you asking me? You're Jesus. You can feed these people. I can't feed these people, but you can. I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There's no Burger Kings around. There's no McDonald's around. There's nothing around for them to eat. And he's saying, he looks at Philip and says, how are we going to feed these people? So this crisis comes up about food. Then the verse 6 says this. He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. I love that. I love that. Because a crisis comes up, there's no food. He looks at Philip and says, what are we going to do? And I, I, I love that our God already has in mind what he's going to do even while we're asking the questions. There's, I don't know what you guys are going through this morning. I don't know what kind of crisis are in your life. You may ask all kinds of questions. You may be asking God all kinds of things right now. God, why is this going on? I don't understand why this is going on. But it's wonderful to know that our God, he already has in mind what he's going to do. He already has a plan for us. Single mom, you wonder how in the world am I going to pay the bills? How in the world am I going to go to school? Am I going to get a job? I'm going to take care of all these kids. I'm going to spend time with these kids. How am I going to do it? I just don't know how I'm going to do it. And you have all these questions, but you know what? God has the answer. And he already knows what he's going to do. He's got a plan for your life. Drug addict, alcoholic, you're thinking, man, I don't know how I'm going to get to the next drink. I don't know how I'm going to, I'm not going to need the next hit or the next drink. How am I going to break this addiction? God knows your questions. He knows the answers. And he has a plan for your life. Couple that's up to your eyeballs in debt. And you're wondering, God, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. Are we going to go bankrupt? Are we going to lose the house? Are we going to, I don't know how I'm going to do this. God has the answer, and he already has a plan for your life. You know what he expects of us? He expects out of us the same thing he expected out of Philip, for us to trust him and obey him. For us to trust him and obey him. Philip, you trust in me and who I am, and you go get a basket and you go feed those people. You trust me and you obey me. A buddy of mine, Brad, he's actually sitting right over there, um, he, uh, his second child, his second little boy, um, when, when he was born, he was about six months old or so, and um, they noticed that his head was getting a little larger than normal. I took him to the doctor. Um, I'll never forget the day. They went to the hospital, and I went, I went over there to see him. And uh, they told him, after they did the CAT scan, after they did all that stuff, they told him that his son, his little baby boy, 
had an arachnoid cyst on his brain that went from the front of his brain to the back of his brain. All the way across. You talking about questions? God, why? How are we going to get through this? How am I going to watch my six-month-old boy go through surgery, brain surgery? Talking about questions, that's questions. Some of the minuscule things we deal with every day is nothing compared to something like that. I'm thinking, man, how's he going to handle this? And I got to watch Brad as he walked through faith, through that. And I'll never forget, he said to me one day, he said, Blake, he said, you know what? God has given us, the little boy's name was Cooper. It is Cooper. You know, God has given us six months with Cooper. And if God chooses to take Cooper, well, then that's up to God. That's not up to me. That's faith, boys. That's faith. And that's understanding who God is. That's trusting in who God is and that he has what's best for us in mind. And whatever God decides to do, that's what he decides to do. And so what Brad did was he trusted God and he obeyed in faith, resting in the fact that God would give him peace no matter what happened. And he calls us to do the same thing in any crisis, in anything we have going on. He asked Philip to do the same thing. Philip, I want you to trust me and I want you to obey me. And Jesus did a miracle. He fed thousands of people. I love it. Did anybody see the Bible series on the History Channel? It was awesome. I, I love watching that miracle and watching the faces of people as they saw what Jesus did. I mean, it was unbelievable. And so Jesus feeds all these people. And verse 14 says, After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this prophet who has come into the world, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So Jesus said, listen, this isn't the way it's supposed to happen. These people were wanting to make him king. They were worshiping this guy. They were, they were, this 5,000 people, they were following this guy, right? And so they camp out by the lake. Night falls. Jesus goes off by himself. And at this point, these people that are following Jesus, these are followers, right? I mean, if you were to ask them the question, are you a follower of Jesus? They would emphatically say, yes, absolutely. I'm a follower of Jesus. The, the first thing in the morning, when they got up the next morning, they began to look for Jesus. They wanted more Jesus. Give me Jesus. Where is he? I want to find him. And at this point, man, he's got them hooked. These are, commit these are church people. I mean, if Jesus wanted to have a spaghetti dinner to raise money, they would be there. If Jesus wanted people to come to a service, these are the people that would be there. If he wanted people to come serve the poor, these are the people that would be there. But why did they want Jesus? Look at what Jesus says. And this is where I want us to inspect our motives, okay? Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, because, uh, but because you ate your loaves and had your fill. They were searching for Jesus. They wanted more Jesus, not because of who he was and what they've seen him done, but why? Because they wanted free food. They wanted free bread. Now, I'm all for free food. All right? Preach it, right? I'm all for free food. Uh, my in-laws are coming to town, and I, I love my in-laws. Don't get me wrong. Love them. But they'll come into town, and they'll want to go out to eat on a Friday night, and I'll kind of be like, you know, there's other things I'd rather be doing on a Friday night. But if they're paying, <laughs> right? 
if they're paying, well, then let's, let, let's get the car loaded, get the kids loaded. We're going to eat, right? Because they're paying. And, and so I'm all for free food. It's not that I necessarily, I mean, I do love my in-laws, but there's other things I want to be doing. But man, if they're going to feed me, then I'm all in. I'm, I'm all in. You see, these people, they didn't really want Jesus. They just wanted Jesus, listen, to meet a need. They wanted Jesus to fill them up. They wanted Jesus to meet a need. And this is where we need to, to inspect our motives. And this begs the question, question number two, do you want Jesus the provider or do you want Jesus as Lord? Do you want Jesus the provider or Jesus as Lord? They were using Jesus for free food. And I wonder if we do that too. Have you ever noticed that people get real serious about their prayer life? Whenever a crisis comes up or whenever a need comes up that they can't meet. I mean, everything's fine as long as they have everything under control. As long as everything's under control, as long as we can pay the bills, as long as everybody's healthy, as long as everything's, as long as we can control it, man, we're fine. But when something gets out of our control, then all of a sudden we lift our hands to God and say, God, I need you. And we get real serious when we need our needs, when we need our needs met, Right? Do we need Jesus to meet a need and forget him only to return to him the next crisis? Jesus said, that's not what it's supposed to be like. Verse 35 in John chapter 6 says this. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus uses the miracle he did the day before to compare and contrast himself to that. He, he says, I'm not going to give you any more bread. I am the bread of life. I mean, think about it. Whenever we eat, we have a physical hunger, right? And many of us can feel it. Some of you are feeling it right now. All right, we have a physical hunger and we go to a, a table, we go to a restaurant, we go somewhere and we eat and we get our fill and we meet that need. And what do we do? We leave, we go about our business, we do our own thing until what happens? Until we get hungry again. And we need that need, we have that need and we need it met. And so we go and we eat again and we leave and we never think about it again until we have to come back again. And Jesus says, listen, that's what you're doing. You're, you're coming to me when you need things and you're going away and you're coming back when you need something again. And that's not how I want it to be. I don't want to be your one-time fill. He says, I am the bread of life. When you come to me and when you're filled by me, you'll never be hungry again. You'll never be thirsty again. I want to be your everyday fill. Jesus doesn't just want to be our provider. He wants to be our Lord. He wants us to seek him and be filled every day. So the question, is Jesus your Lord? Have you ever thought about what the word Lord means? A lot of times we think the word Lord is just another word for God, but that's not necessarily true. The word Lord is a title. It's a title. It means master. It means owner. It's someone who has authority over you. So when someone is your Lord, that means that they own you. That means that if you have something planned for your day and your Lord decides that's not what you're doing today, you know what? Then you're going to change what you're doing. Have you ever seen the, the show, uh, what's it called, Downton Abbey? Downton Abbey is, I don't know, it's, my parents watch it. and It's, it's made over, the, the setting is in Britain or England or somewhere over there in the 1930s, 1940s. And the, there's this big, huge household and they have servants and maids. They got all these people under them. But there's one guy who is the Lord of the manor. All right? He's the Lord. 
And if a servant is doing something, if they have their whole day planned out, and the Lord comes and says, no, you're not doing that today, this is what you're doing, you know what they do? They change it. They don't have a choice. And so when we call Jesus our Lord, what we are saying is, God, there's nothing that I have control of. There's nothing in my life that is mine. Everything is yours. It's at your disposal. You do with me what you want to do with me. This is my plan. A lot of times we come to God with a plan, you know, and God changes the plan. It's really smart to just go to God and say, God, what do you want me to do? God, what do you want with my life? I know this is what I'm doing with my life right now. What do you want to do with my life? And you know what? He has the authority because he is our Lord to change it. So when we proclaim as believers that Jesus is our Lord, we're saying that he owns us. He controls us. The problem is, is that I think there are people in this room right now. And there are people in churches all over America sitting right now during this time at a worship service that would say, yes, Jesus is my Savior, but he's not your Lord. That we would say, yeah, man, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I believe in him. And I believe that his blood covers my sin. I, I believe all that. But there are still things in your life that you have control of. You can't say that Jesus owns your tomorrows, that he decides your tomorrows, because he doesn't. You do. And here's the problem with that. And here's the scary part. Because Jesus actually says that some of you will call me Lord, but you, but but that's not who I am in your life. He says, some will call me Lord, Lord, but when it comes in that day, he's going to say, depart from me for I never knew you. Here's the scary part. Is that he can't be your savior and not your Lord. In the word, it's not an option. Romans 10 verse 9, we know it. It says, when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is savior. Nope, it's not what it says. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is king. That's not what it says. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Say it with me. Lord. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, then you will be what? Saved. It is a condition for salvation. For you to confess and reflect in your life that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that he owns you, that he controls you. And that's a lot different than just saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus, isn't it? It's a lot different. You can't have one without the other. I think there are people in here right now who you've proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ, but you have not allowed him to be Lord of your life. And so Jesus tells that to them, and look at what happens. In verse 66, he closes the buffet. He says there won't be anything left to eat. Jesus is the only thing left on the menu. And look at verse 66. It says, from this time, many of his disciples. You hear that? These are not just people who walked up while he was preaching and were on the fringe. These were his disciples. Many of his disciples turned away and no longer followed him. And you know what strikes me here? Is that Jesus, he didn't chase after them. (laughs) He didn't didn't send the disciples after them with, with creative handouts and pizza suppers. He let them leave. He was not concerned about drawing crowds. He wasn't concerned that his popularity had plummeted. What he was concerned about was their level of commitment. Jesus wasn't concerned about the size of the crowd. And this is a huge problem. 
in modern day Christianity, we're so concerned about drawing crowds and we're so concerned about people accepting Jesus. And we want, and, and believe me, it's, it's well intended. As, as a pastor, we want people to get saved and we want people to know how wonderful Jesus is. But when we do that, we leave out part, parts of the gospel that people need to know before they decide they're going to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, think about it. We love to quote the verse, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are, are, who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That's a, that's a wonderful promise of God, and it's absolutely true. But then we leave out verses like Luke chapter 14, verse 27. It says, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be a disciple. When someone's carrying a cross, they're going to die on it. The only reason somebody carries a cross is because they're going to die on it. And so for us to follow Jesus, for us to be a disciple of Christ, our desires, our dreams, our plans have to die so that his can reign in our life. Unfortunately, we cheapen the gospel to where it becomes a system of life that'll make you feel better. Or that'll make you more successful or that even make you happier. And the gospel becomes about us. Listen, guys, the gospel's not about us. We accept Jesus and we think, man, everything's going to be great now. I'm going to be happier. I'm going to be more successful. That, that my marriage is going to be great. All my friendships are going to be great. And Jesus never promises that. In fact, he says it's going to be harder. It's going to be tougher. You know what a cheapened gospel creates? A cheapened gospel creates half-hearted, lukewarm Christians. Does that sound like the American church? A gospel that promises you everything but costs you nothing will draw a crowd. Anything cheap will draw a crowd, right? Me and my wife, uh, Roz, we were driving around a few weeks ago after church and we drove by KFC and KFC was slammed. I mean, there were all kinds of people there. There were people lined up out the door. There were cars parked everywhere. I was like, what's going on at KFC? I mean, have they ever tasted KFC? But KFC's terrible. <laughs> and then when we drove around the building we, I found out why people were at KFC on the sign it said lunch buffet $4.99 and it proves especially in Oconee County that if you serve a cheap buffet you're going to draw a crowd right? a cheap buffet draws a crowd anything that's cheap is going to draw a crowd and I'm afraid that's what's happened in our churches, is that we cheapen the gospel to where it becomes about us and not about God so that we can draw crowds. But Jesus wasn't concerned about the crowd. And this is hard to swallow. But some of us in here today, that's you. You've accepted Christ in a brand of Christianity that promises you everything but costs you nothing. Why does following Jesus cost you? That's our third question. What has following Jesus cost you? The reason why there's no passion, the reason why there's no commitment in your walk with Jesus is because it's never cost you anything. If it costs something, then it's for real. Has following Jesus ever cost you your time? Has it ever cost you your secret sins that nobody else knows about? Have, has it ever cost you a certain type of lifestyle that you wanted to live? 
Has it ever cost you friends? Has it ever cost you family? What does following Jesus cost you? You see, we parade Jesus around like he's some type of genie in a bottle waiting to fulfill our every dream here on earth. And Jesus is saying, listen, guys, I didn't promise that. As preachers, we don't, I don't have to make Jesus more attractive. Jesus is attractive. I don't have to help him. I have a, a little girl um, we just adopted uh, four, four or five months ago. We came back from China in December with her. She's my little Asian baby doll. I love her. She's awesome. Um, and uh, let's just say she, when she turns 25, if, she doesn't ha- if she's not already married, well, let's say 35 because she's not going to marry until she's 35. So let, let's say 35. Let's say she, she hits 35 and she's not married yet. And I decide, you know what? As her father, because I love her, I'm going to help her out. I'm going to help her find a husband. And so I get billboards and I put on billboards her picture, how beautiful she is, and begin listing on the billboard all her best characteristics, all her best traits. I get flyers and I start handing them out and talking to God. Listen, this is great. This is my, this is my daughter. Look how wonderful she is. Isn't she great? Would I be doing her any favors? No. I wouldn't be doing her any favors. I would never do that. If I want someone to date my, to date my little girl, to marry my little girl, I'm going to set the standard high. I'm going to be doing lie detector tests and setting up hidden cameras. I'm going, to, I'm going to make it hard, right? Because, this is why, because if you want to marry my daughter, you better be able to give her the best you've got. And if you want Jesus, we don't have to make him more attractive. If you, we don't have to set up these big things where we tell the great things. Listen, this word is what God wanted to communicate to us and he has told us everything about himself. We don't need to leave out the hard parts. We don't need to leave out the stuff that, that maybe we don't think people are going to like. This is attractive enough. And if you want to come to this Jesus, you better be willing to give him the best you've got. Because the most life-changing part of the gospel is the fact that we sacrifice, that we give up who we are for who he is. And you know what the beautiful and ironic and crazy thing about it is? Is that when we don't care about the blessing anymore, when we want Jesus for who he is, we get the blessing. When the blessing doesn't matter anymore, when we just want Jesus, that's the blessing. The hard part is we don't realize it until we get there. I want everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. We've talked about some some pretty tough stuff in here this morning, and I just want to give you a chance to respond to that. You may be one of those people in here, and you say, Blake, the gospel has never cost me anything. I'm the guy, I'm the guy, I'm the girl who accepted Christ when I was little or, or have accepted Christ even maybe recently. But the reason you've done that is because things were going wrong in your life and you just needed something to fix it. Now that he's fixed and everything's fine, you're not seeking him anymore. It's because Jesus is not your Lord. He's not your master. I mean, there may be some of you in here this morning and you say, Blake, I've never accepted Christ. I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I understand I can't have him as Savior and not Lord. If that's you, I want you to slip your hand up. Like this morning, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. Thank you. You may be in here this morning and there's been conviction in your life. 
that like I'm not, I'm not allowing Jesus to be the Lord of my life. I, I want him not just to be Savior, but I want him to be Lord. What I want you to do this morning is this altar up here is wide open. If you'd like to respond while the band's playing, you're welcome to do that. I know Mark's here. You can talk to him. You can talk to, to some of their, their, their volunteers here. They'll be happy to talk with you. You may be going through a crisis this morning. And Jesus already knows the answer. What he wants you to do is he wants you to trust him and he wants you to obey him. And so however God is dealing with you this morning, let's set things straight. Let's make him Lord of our life. Dear Lord, we love you. Lord, I thank you for these people. I thank you for this church. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you will move in our lives right now. I pray that you will not allow us to leave this place until you become Lord of our life, until we've given over to you control. Your word says that you bought us with a price, that you own us. Lord, and I pray that we will submit ourselves to that ownership this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all stand.